This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the interview on the Raptors Republic Podcast Network. I'm Andrew Damelin. Today we begin our series on Canada basketball as we head towards the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. And to do that, we have a three-on-three qualifier who happens to be the best shooter in college basketball history. His name is Steve Sir. Steve, how are you? I'm fine, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And so right now you're in Lipik, Croatia. You just finished a quarterfinal um, entry into the tournament. You lost to uh, the Belgian team in the quarterfinal in a really difficult, tough game mm-hmm. at the end. A couple of tough calls that uh, went that did go your way, actually, that you're smiling yeah. wryly about. Now, I want to circle back to where we are right now, but I want the listeners mm-hmm. to get to know you. I'm not sure how many people know of, of Steve Sir. So sure. the, the first question uh, I want to ask you is, what's the first clear basketball memory you have where you fell in love with the game as a kid? Uh, well, my first word was ball. Um, so I, I think I was a little bit set on what I wanted, uh, what I wanted to pursue. Um, my dad was a very good basketball player. Uh, he was uh, a conference player at a division two school in Minnesota called Winona state, a really high level division two university. He played professionally in Belgium um, so there was a little bit of a nudge towards the, like, you know, wouldn't basketball be fun? Hint, hint. And, uh, my first memories with basketball were going to watch my dad play in, in men's league because once he had finished up with playing professionally, he was still a very good player and was still seeking out uh, competition. Uh, we had moved to Edmonton, uh, for, for his job and he was going to a bunch of different kind of runs in the city. Uh, playing with the U- University of Alberta guys who, who were really good at the time. And uh, I would go with them and I would sit on the end of his bench and or I'd sit on the stage at the Mormon church when they would play on Wednesday nights and, and I would just watch and uh, run out there when they took a break and try and chuck one up on the rim and then scoot off the court when the big guys came back. Uh, so that's what I remember about basketball first was, was watching my dad, um, being around all these big guys who were loud and sweaty and used words that I wasn't allowed to say uh, when we went home to mom and, and, and things like that. So um, I loved it from the start because there was just this feeling you got when you went into the gym where people were competing and, and were uh, saying things that just didn't get said uh, outside of the gym. And just, you know, that smell the, of, of, of pickup basketball and the shoes squeaking and the ball bouncing and, um, from there, it was it was just really what I wanted to do was uh, was to emulate my dad and emulate the guys that I saw playing in those gyms and and, and competing and having fun. It was your dad a lights out shooter? He was a really good shooter. He was a great shooter. Um, I, I got a lot of the you're a better shooter than or maybe you're a better shooter than your dad when I was growing up. Um, but he could really shoot, and and it was uh, you know obviously different era. The three pointer wasn't uh, emphasized the way that it is now. 
Um, but he was a great, you know, mid-range shooter, catch, pump fake, one-two dribble, lean into you, hit a shot type of thing. Real smart. You knew how to use screens. Um, and he was my first coach. So he, he uh, really helped me with uh, the fundamentals of, of how to shoot the ball, how to prepare for your shot, uh, what to look for when things weren't going right. And, uh, yeah, he uh, he was my first coach and, and as good a teacher as I could have had as far as the shooting component and the competing component. Now, so with me growing up, I remember in elementary school and at the high school, there was always a player on the other team, a top-ranked team, where you may not have scouted them beforehand, but after the first couple of shots, you're like, damn, i got to chase this guy around a screen. i gotta go, I got, I can't, I can't shoot a gap. i gotta tra- I got a trail. i got to go over it. Do you remember the point, and it became so annoying, to, to try to chase this guy around. Do you remember the point where you became an annoying guy to guard? <laughs> um, shooting was what I did well when I was young. Uh, you know, I, I remember hearing at a young age when you're dribbling up the floor, or you'd hear parents or coaches on the other team yell, don't let him shoot. And uh, that was something that always stuck in my head of uh, – well, I guess they think I can shoot it if they're if they're willing to yell it out there in our small little gyms that we were playing in. Um, when it really started to stick with me, when it was uh, clearly something that like teams were preparing for, were scouting against, uh, we're, we're we're spending a lot of time um, trying to take that away from what we did was when I got to high school. Um, before that, when we played community league basketball growing up and when I played junior high, everybody knew I was a really good shooter, but it just wasn't the same because the preparation hadn't become a big part of the game yet. Um, but when, once I got to, to high school, you could tell that it was, you know, you're getting the other team's best defender. Um, you're probably going to see a lot of defenders over the course of the game where they're going to be switching on you, bumping you, grabbing you, doing all those things. And you learn pretty quick that this is probably just going to be my basketball life, where if you're running on the, if you're on the court, you're going to have the fastest, strongest guy guarding you, saying crazy things in your ear, um, and making it really tough on you to get catches, not just whether or not you're going to shoot. Like their whole job is that you're not supposed to let Steve touch the ball. Um, so that's when it really set in for me that, okay, this is the way life's going to be. I'm not going to show up to a gym and be able to do that thing anymore where you hit five or six and the other team finally figures out, oh, he can shoot. Um, so from there, then I, you got into the ideas of if this is what the plan is for the other team, um, then part of what I'm going to have to be good at is, is dealing with that and then figuring out ways to still utilize my strengths for myself and the benefit of my team, even though they're doing everything they can to take it away. So you, you parlay that shooting prowess, I imagine with other parts of your game to go down to to play Division One basketball, you mm-hmm. uh, go to San Diego State for a season, redshirt mm-hmm. second season, transfer to Northern Arizona, uh, and you end up becoming the the best three point shooter in NCAA history. Do you happen to know the number, the percentage that you shot for your career? Um, I think it is it forty six point nine. I think it's 46.2. I, we should check that. I think it's 46.2. Maybe it's 46.9. But uh, on 6.2 attempts. 46.2, we'll, we'll take it. Yeah. it, it I think I – know, I know there was a 46 in there. Um, to be honest, I haven't seen it in a little while. Uh, so, uh, yeah, somewhere in and around there. Yeah, on, on 6.2 attempts as well. A really successful career. And I had a couple of dates that I picked out that were exceptional for you. And I was wondering if I named the date – would you be able to pick out what game or what occurred on that day? Okay, okay so 
the first, and there's actually the same thing happened on two separate dates. So the first is two dates, January okay. 25th, January 25th, 2006 and January 11th, 2011. Oh boy. 2006. <laughs> I'm the not same, sure. The same thing happened. So you, you went eight for 10 from three. Okay. All in right. both of those games. Now I've asked shooters over the years. I've talked to Nick Stauskas and I've talked to a guy named Matt Morgan sure. on the Raptors 905. And uh-huh. it's hard for even them to sort of tell you what it feels like to, to be feeling it. Yeah. But they do they do try. Can you explain to us lay people, us lay shooters, what it feels like to be feeling it? Oh boy, I got one crack at this, so I better do this right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I will I will side with those guys a little bit that it's, it's difficult to put into words and feel like you're going to do it justice. Um, this is probably an easy easy way to start. It would be everything just feels right. Um, you know, how you move, uh, when guys are bumping you, it's like, it, it doesn't bug you. Nothing's, re- nothing's registering as far as, you know, outside distraction. Um, really you're just feeling in this, this kind of, I know there, there's a lot of talk of it now of, of being in the zone, like that flow state where it's just very linear and, and, and everything's just going in, in, in a smooth, smooth road for you. Um, your confidence is high. Like even if you miss one, like if you're eight for 10, I, you're not bothered at all by the one that you miss. Um, I've always found that when you really know that you're playing well and shooting the ball well, for me, it was, am I rebounding the ball well? If, if I was in there like getting on the glass and, and doing things like that, um, then that usually meant that uh, I was shooting the ball at a, at a really high, at a really high clip that day. But um I would say the, the confidence you have in yourself is, is higher than you, you normally ever feel just because if you touch it, you feel like it's going to go in. Um, if you get a look, it's going to go in. You're very aware of, of, I think, how deflating it is to the other side of the ball while not really playing, paying any attention to it. You know that like everything's going in to, to try to stop you. And the second you get a little bit of daylight, the expectation is like, oh, that's it. He made it like all that effort for nothing. And you became, become very hyper aware of the feeling in the gym of like the, the second there's daylight, that's it. And if you miss, everyone's surprised. So there's, I don't think there's any greater, greater compliment to a shooter that when you miss people go, what's the problem? Like what happened? So uh, when you're in that zone, it's a special thing because I mean, the longer you play, the more you realize that it just doesn't happen to the highest degree that you would hope that you'd have be lucky enough to experience in your life or when you're playing and, and, and you get a, a, get a chance to see that there's different levels to it. Like one day you feel good. Another day, like you feel really good. And then you have those special days where it's like, everything just feels right. And uh, when it's over, you, um, I, I know I felt like, wow, like that was, that was pretty cool. That, that, that felt, that felt great. And when you watch it back, you go like, man, how come I can't just do that all the time? But it's, uh, it's just one of those special feelings and those cool things that happen in sport that when you reflect on it, you go, man, that, I, in a way you're not lucky, but you're awfully fortunate that you were able to experience it. 
first of all, that's an amazing explanation. So I think you you did it justice. Okay, so I was a little worried that it was going to stink. <laughs> no, it was very. It was, it was excellent. But you know, you mentioned you say why can't I do that all the time? And and that's the downside of of the shooter, right? The shooter when sure. you become when you become so good, the expectation is that it's going to go in. And especially mm-hmm. if you're someone off the bench who's like the microwave scorer and you miss those first couple or something, it's like, well, this third one better go in or else yeah. I, I might be coming out of the game. And, um, you know, I, st- I talked to Stauskas about the shooter's mentality, and uh, he was well, he wasn't teammates with Duncan Robinson, but Duncan Robinson also went to the University right. of Michigan. And right. Robinson has a really deep philosophy in terms of the shooter's mentality. He says he's never one to put up extra shots after a bad game, let's say, because mm-hmm. he's like, if my work was good enough before – I went seven for 10 or five for 10 or three for 10. It was good enough when I went one for 10 or over 10 mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Right. So do you, how do you manage that? Cause there's waves of confidence with any player, but mm-hmm. especially with a shooter when his job is to make shots, how have you managed those? I'm sure there've been, you know, down streaks and things like that. Sure, how, yeah. how, how have you managed those to, to sort of keep that even mentality and, and stay in that uh, positive mindset as a shooter? You know what? I'll, Honestly, Andrew, it's hard. Like there, there are times when you get into these slumps and you you miss certain shots that you drilled all week, and you're just like, I've been working on this. I didn't hit it. What the hell? And you know, you you get into those feelings where you remember your misses so clearly, and like just inch by inch, second by second, and you forget. Like, yeah, but you made ten this way. It's like, yeah, but what about the one? And it's just driving you up the wall. Um, managing your highs and lows, is, I think, is one of the biggest challenges in anything. But, I mean, as a shooter where it's such a precision thing, um, it's so easy to beat yourself up on the ones that you felt like, oh, man, if I would have done, like, that different, it would have been money or something like that. Um, and try and always focus on the mentality of, you know, next play, next shot, uh, doing something little to really cue up your shooting, like, you know, the idea of my, my dad was, was great at reminding me of this, and I've had other good coaches over the course of my career. But, like, if you're struggling with your shooting, like, let's do something easy to get going here. Like, let, let's get a back cut. You know, like like I mentioned before with rebounding, like, if I'm getting back cuts in games, then I know that I'm not just shooting the ball. I'm reading the game the correct way. Because um, you have those games where you're shooting it pretty well, but you're just, it's two, three heavy. Like I'm, I'm always hunting the next one. You're doing heat checks and things like that. And then if you're really reading the defense and it's like, okay, that, that's really what they're concerned about as well. Let me back cut and get a layup and, and let me do something easy. Let me get to the free throw line and really clear the head, get something simple. Um, as shooters, I think everyone can agree with this. You, you got to be a great screener as a shooter. Um, you got to understand how freeing up your teammates oftentimes is one going to get them going. And then two, the old adage of, of screener gets the shot. So, so go crack somebody on a screen and get somebody open. That really cues you up of like, I'm engaged here and it's going to turn around. Um, I've always found for shooting though, the, the, the greatest test is can you manage your highs and manage your lows and just stay consistent? Because the guys who are the shooters that we all marvel at, are the ones that are day-to-day shooting the ball really well. Not amazing, really well. And that's the ultimate challenge is can I be a, a can I be the best shooter in the gym on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and not just have it be like, man, he was lights out today and he just can't buy one. You know, he can't buy one yesterday or buy one the next day. 
Um, Steve Martin had a great quote about that uh, in his book about stand-up comedy of how there would always be comedians that would come in and just kill that one night and then they would stink the next one. And he said his great challenge was, can I be funny and really good every single day? And I really, when I read that, I thought like, boy, that doesn't feel like shooting where the gym's cold, the ball feels weird, the other team's all over you, passive maybe you're just a second late. I don't, I ate something weird before the game, but can I still be really good? And, um, you know, I, it's, it's a battle sometimes and it's something that I've struggled with over my career of, of focusing too much on the negative and forgetting like, like what you mentioned with Duncan Robinson of, uh, if I did all the things right and I just had a bad day, then I'm human. I had a bad day. I can bounce back and the work that I put in isn't di- any different. Um, but I'd imagine most shooters would say the same things. You just have, you have those slumps where you feel like, Hey, is this going to turn around? And then it turns around and all of a sudden you're just right back to where you want to be. Support for the interview is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below the waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right. The 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code RR at Manscaped.com. Imagine shaving with a sleek, well-designed, and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code RR at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com and use the code RR. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Move on from Northern Arizona uh, as as that shooter that you are and... I mean, I looked at your real GM page. There was a there was a gap between 07 and 2011 when you played in Romania. Um, was there was there were you playing professionally in that interim period, or was there? Yeah. Okay, well, I so was, I was in uh, I was in Switzerland for two years, um, and then I was in Germany for a year, and then I played in boy, I played in Mexico for two years, which was uh, which was an experience. So. Um, I wanted there to ask was, you. Uh, I wanted to ask you what's the best overseas horror story you could you could give <laughs> us. Everyone I've talked to on the Representative Five has got something, something you can tell us on the podcast that that quickly comes to mind. Appropriate, sure. Um, <laughs> when we were traveling in, you know, when we were traveling in Mexico, we were uh, we were on a long bus ride through the night, and um, this was during when uh, some of the uh, the cartel stuff was getting pretty bad, and. Uh, Everyone was asleep on the bus, and all of a sudden the bus came to a stop, and uh, some guys in military uniforms came on the bus with their with their weapons, and they just put them in everyone's faces, and they were like, passports, where are the passports? And all of us were just like, I hope these guys are actually military. So, I mean, it's it's not funny. It's not funny. I mean, I, I don't even know if I've told my wife that story because it just freaked her out so much, but... We showed our passports, and luckily they turned out to be real military, and they weren't cartel that were disguised as military, and you'd heard bad stories about those things. And we luckily, like, got on, got kept going on the bus and got back home safe and sound, but it was one of those experiences where everybody looked around afterwards and, like, there's another way that could have ended that would have been really awful, and uh, thank goodness we're moving in the right direction. So that, that was a scary one. Wow. A scary one. wow, that's crazy. 
Um, yeah. yeah, so this we're talking about the the winding road you we're getting to the to the three on three, uh, you mm-hmm. know, right? So, so let's let's continue um, past sure. that terrible memory. So <laughs> you you play in Romania, you play in uh, Switzerland, back to Romania actually, and in 2016 you get a summer league invite uh, for, to the Milwaukee Bucks, um, and I was like, you, know, you played two games, two or three games for them. And uh, do you remember the game against the Rockets? I imagine that's a clear one that, that sticks at you. And two for two from three, I think. Um, yeah. um, Montrez Harrell was in that game for the, for the Rockets. You were playing with Malcolm Brogdon. Um, mm-hmm. that, so do you remember stepping out on the floor amongst NBA competition? And, yeah. you know, nine years after leaving college. Uh, do you remember what that was like? Well, it was when you looked at the roster. It was uh, there was a, a bit of a gap in uh, in age. So they released our roster, and all the birthdays were like in the nineties. Yeah, they were twenty two, and then you came to my name, and it was nineteen eighty two. These guys had no idea what nineteen eighty two was all about. Um, so I was a little bit older, definitely one of the veterans on the on the summer league roster. Um, but when they told me that I was coming, it was. Uh, it was to be just that. Like they wanted me to come in and, and, and shoot the ball uh, because that was something at the time the Bucks were really lacking. And they wanted me to also be a leader for a group of guys that were all younger and needed to learn how to work um, at an NBA level. Now, I wasn't an NBA player uh, as far as being on a roster or anything like that, but one of the things that has worked for me is there's uh, always been, uh, I guess, the word out there that I'm a pretty persistent guy and that I, if, if there's a chance to come early or stay late, then I'm going to do it. And I do feel like that was a key thing that helped me become a great shooter was of the consistency of, of pre and post-practice workouts and getting extra shots and running a few extra sprints. And, and that's what they wanted me to do with the roster was to be that guy that was also helping young guys get their extra reps in. Um, I knew when I was going to go down there that it was going to be a crapshoot on whether or not I was going to get a lot of playing time. Um, they had told me flat out, like, we have some guys that are going to get a long look and, um, we'll see what happens. That's fine with me. It was, you know, still an opportunity to go play in, like you said, at an NBA level, be on an NBA floor. And that's a, a dream come true for, for just about any basketball player. When I went down there, I, I surprised myself a bit and played well. Um, the NBA is very different than the Euro. I mean, you know, Andrew, it's, it's very different than European basketball. Um, you can find shots if you're playing with guys that can get you into spots. And the guys are so big that when they're, when they're hitting people with screens, it's awfully tough to get around. And um, I sat for a good number of the first couple of games. And I made a deal with myself when I went down there, though, that no matter what happened, I was going to, you know, do the same thing, show up early, stay late, uh, have a good attitude. Uh, if I'm sitting and I get 30 seconds, I'm going to go in there and give myself the best 30 seconds that I can for the team. And I'm going to come out because I'm nine years out of school. And I know like these opportunities don't come along ever. And if if this is going to be something that I'm going to pout about, uh, that's going to be the wrong way to end this. So I stayed positive. I I had a pretty good closed door scrimmage with the Raptors. Um, I got in against the Mavericks Missed a shot, was a little bit upset at the end of that because I was like, oh, man, that might have been my one. Um, on an off day, I had a chance to get in with the gym with Steve Novak and Michael Carter-Williams. I bugged the coaches to let me join the workout, and they were like, all right, go, fine, work out with them. And uh, I really felt like, you know, hey, if I get a chance to play, I'm going to 
I'm gonna do my best. I'm gonna get, and I feel like you know, until this is over, I know I'm I'm, I'm gonna get something. I just don't know what it is. And then the Rockets game happened, and it's all the way to the end. And then they tossed me in, and I got a free throw. So like we talked about earlier, like something little to get you on track and get you focused. And then got a nice one in transition on the right wing. Uh, they hit me in, in stride, which was probably a shooter's dream to walk into a good-looking three. And then uh, a, a nice NBA one where they swung it around, you get to the corner, and, and you're just able to pop it. And, man, I'll tell you, like, it was uh, – my wife was there with my kids, and, uh, you know, my, my parents were there. And there were some kids from Edmonton that were down there for an AAU tournament that were at the game. And, you know, I've I played a lot of basketball and I've been a lot of places, but – to wear the, you know, the, uh, have an NBA jersey on, to play on an NBA floor, to have people yelling your name was really a dream come true because when I was little, I mean, I collected NBA cards. You dream of this level. And, and I know there's a lot of guys out there now that, you know, have these opportunities, but I played in some out-of-the-way countries and the NBA didn't come along for me until I was 34. So to have a chance to do that was, uh, it's difficult to put into words. It was, it was special. And, uh, to be able to hit a couple shots and have some kind of impact was, uh, was something I'll cherish for the, for the rest of my life. Man, I, I got chills. That's amazing. Thinking about, you know, thinking about my, watching if my kids ever came to watch me do whatever sure. I, you know, I, to cover a game. And that's really, really cool. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you took so much out of that experience. Uh, and, you know, Thanks, since man. then you've, parlayed that into a three on three captaincy. Here we are for, for team Canada. The, uh, you know, when you started with team, with team Canada or with three on three basketball, it wasn't an Olympic sport as yet. No. And you would really, you, there was an interview I saw you did, you had a funny response where people's, uh, people's opinions on three on three really flipped once. Um, quick. Yeah. Well, can you, can you describe people's reaction once, um, it was decided that it was going to be an Olympic sport? Very much so. I, I really enjoy answering this question because it was, like Andrew, I'm telling you, if you could capture in a bottle how funny it was and how quick it flipped, of uh, we were running it, we were running 3x3 tournaments in Alberta, um, probably since about 2011, 2012, uh, with Alberta basketball. Uh, my dad had attended a meeting in Denver uh, talking about the changes to the game and how it was going to be new and exciting and fast. And there was even this whisper of, you know what, like, they're looking for new sports at the Olympics. This could be an Olympic sport. It's exciting. People love basketball, volleyball, and beach volleyball, that kind of stuff. So we were running these events, and man, did people push back on it? Like, oh, the rules, and like, you know, what? Why? Why aren't we checking it after we score every time? What's with this ball? Like, it's so annoying. And like, I get it. Like, it was new, and I, I'm not trying to bad mouth anybody, but it was, it was just, it was funny to see people be so resistant to it. Like, I just. People were like taking the three x three ball, hiding it under chairs, and then grabbing a regular five on five ball and be like, "We can't find the ball. Just play with it." So it was really weird. The second it became an Olympic sport, and when I started playing it, people were like, "That sounds fun. Good for you." The second it became an Olympic sport, people were like, "Man, this is fun!" Like, "Man, this ball is cool!" Like, look at all the colors and. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I love the rules. It's such a fast paced game. And I was like, I don't remember it being described that way two months ago. ago. So, yeah, exactly. There was a pretty big about face on this. But the good thing was uh, when the Olympics, the announcement came for for Tokyo, was it just put a legitimacy behind the sport that, that, I mean, only the Olympics can provide because 
there's a pro circuit, there's all these tournaments, there's prize money that are, is available in a lot of these things that I think sometimes people don't understand just how much is available out there for the opportunities to play in all these unique places in the world and opportunities to play against really good players, be at these super cool events and, you know, win a little bit of cash too, like kind of take a different avenue for professional basketball. Um, but when the Olympics got behind it, people really stood up and, and, and noticed like, wow, this is, this is serious. And this is going to be something that people are going to have to really pay a lot of attention and, and, and not, not be able to ignore as just kind of like some sort of kitsch sport um, which was great because that created more interest. It creates more engagement. And then I think it also will allow uh, more opportunities for young players, for, for weekend warriors, just people who love basketball to get involved in a sport that, that really and truly at the heart of it is, is a lot of fun. It's fast. It's quick. Everybody gets to touch the ball. Um, there's all these possibilities for it. And, and luckily the Olympics really lended, uh, lended weight to it so that people could jump in and be enthusiastic about it. Yeah, and to be honest, you know, just watching your tournament was the first time I had watched FIBA three-on-three basketball, and I'm like, this okay. is interesting. So the ball goes in the hoop, 12 seconds on the shot clock. You take it out of the hoop. You have to clear it. The shot clock is running as soon as you take it out of the hoop, right? It's not yeah. like it's not like regular three-on-three where everyone stops, you go back to the top, and you check up and start again. So it just it looks exhausting to be to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like and it's physical. It, it's you know it's it's half court, a third court, and it's mm. physical as hell. And you know I'm wondering, like there's there's the five on five player that plays some three on three, but let's say him mm. and his buddies want who are they're good. They want to enter a three on three tournament, but they're going to face Steve Sur and the boys. Right. What type of sort of strategic adjustments or maybe they're that they be, might be caught by surprise by perhaps or not really know what to do in terms of the three on three setting that they may not be used to? I, you know, the biggest adjustment, I think, Andrew, for, for everybody is how quickly the ball turns from offense to defense, defense to offense. Um, in five on five, we have the chance to, like, you know, make a shot. You get to jog or run back and settle in and see what's coming at you. This change is so quick, and when you play against guys that have really figured out the nuances of the sport, they're oftentimes playing offense before their defense is even set up. So if they know, like, hey, the ball went into the low post, can't really help because it's not a good idea to help off shooters on the wing and give up a two as opposed to a one, and they see a big guy is going to go or a post player is going to go and score the basket. These guys are turning from defense to offense before the ball's even gone in. They're running to a new spot. They're running to go screen for somebody. And if you're new to it, the odds are you're probably watching your teammate score and then going like, all right, who do I guard? And that guy's already run over to a blind spot. He's already hitting a pass and whipping it back inside for an easy layup. Three on three is so quick in how it turns from one side of the ball to the other it catches people off guard when they first start playing it because you're used to just having a little bit of a buffer uh, so that you can adjust to, to getting from one side of the court to the other. I think the simplicity in the game is wonderful because like you said, there's 12 seconds, you know, there's time, but there's not a lot of time. So when you get it, you either got to shoot it, put it down, or you got to get rid of it and go do something for somebody else. When new guys come to the sport, there's still that draw of five on five. I'm like, I'm going to get it. I'm probably going to bounce it and set my stuff up, and I'm going to start to maybe do my thing. And before you know it, six seconds has gone by. 
and nobody's moved. And for the defense, that's perfect because if the game's been fast, I can kind of catch my breath a little bit. Then you're killing yourself trying to go one-on-one. And I've done this when I first started playing it. I see you guys do it now. You just expended all this energy to try and get one point. And then if you make or you miss it, rebound, throw it, guy catches it, hits a two, or guy catches it, whips it back in, gets a layup, we scored in two seconds. And now you got to turn around and do it all over again. And you go, oh, my God, my, my heart is going crazy. I'm out of breath. And I can't kill myself like this on every possession for 21 once. Um you don't get that as much, I think, now that we've gotten to the kind of level that we wanted to get to because everyone we play against now knows, like, the ins and outs of the sport. They have their unique strategies depending on what country they come from of how they want to play. Um, and that's one of the beauties of it is is it's it's so fast and physical and, and, and taxing. But, man, when it starts to click and there's a rhythm to it, it's a, it's a beautiful game. When the ball's moving and guys are making quick decisions and quick reads – Oftentimes when the fans have been at games, you can hear people go, you know, make those sounds of enjoyment of like an alley-oop or from a back cut or from a wide open three or a fake and a behind-the-back pass that comes from just being able to read the game quickly. And, and, and that's a thrill to be able to hear because it's really simple and pure basketball of, of, of collective and uh, fast reading movement. You know, that's a beautiful explanation of the game, and that, I think that's a perfect way to – to end this, um, I have I had one more for you, but that's just such a good explanation that we're going to leave it. We'll leave it at that. I think. Um, listen, shoot, Andrew, shoot. Okay, Let's fine. Well, it's 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 just about the strategy. You know, with the NBA, it's it's adjusted um, in terms of the three point shot. Obviously, the volume is just exploded mm-hmm. now, and because a three is greater than two. Now in three on three, it's doubles two and yeah. one. So. How much of the strategy is sort of centered around when the, let's say there's a, you know, there's a post up and maybe there's a mismatch because of a screen. It's like, how often are you willing to concede just that one-on-one matchup? Maybe it'll be a layup versus giving up a two, given how valuable a two is now. Depending on what stage in the game it's at, that definitely plays a role. I mean, when you get down to the nitty gritty and say it's 16, 15 with a minute left, I mean, you don't want to give up twos because that can be huge momentum swings, but you really don't want to give up anything at that point. Um, you have to be smart because sometimes, as I mentioned before, inexperienced teams will come in and think, oh, well, we'll just make twos. And then metrically, the more twos we shoot, that should balance out that we'll just score more points. Well, no, that's not always how it's going to work because if you're tired as hell and you're trying to chuck up these twos and these guys are just beating you to death on defense, um, you might make zero. Like, there have been games when we played against guys that are shooting a high volume of twos, but they're so gassed that they're just throwing it up there. Then when we get the rebound, they're out of position for defense, and we can get easy ones when they're still trying to catch their breath. Um, You do want to have a healthy amount of twos taken because, you know, one of the great things about this sport is there aren't any guys that I can think of that we play against at a high level that aren't a threat to be able to hit that shot. You have to be able to hit the shot. Because if you aren't, people are just going to leave you. And I, when I first got involved in this, there were a few guys that played where if they get a catch at the two, you just fall back into the paint. Or you could double off them or something along those lines. So finding this, the right balance of, uh, of outside attack to draw the defense out and then being able to just do old-fashioned basketball where it's like, hey, we, we need a basket or a foul. So like we have Kyle Landry on our team who's, who's a great Canadian player and uh, spent a lot of time with our national team. 
oftentimes, you know, we want to say, hey, at the beginning of the game, we need to get Kyle involved. We need to get Kyle engaged. And the best way to do that is maybe let's get some screen, rescreen action. Let's get him diving at the basket, get someone on his back, and let's get an easy basket so that he's feeling good. Um, late in the game, those are great things too because we put the onus on the refs to be, say, hey, if, if he's going to score, he's going to score, or we need him to get fouled so he can go to the free throw line. Um even though the game is sped up, even though the game does break down to, like you said, you know, twos count for a whole heck of a lot, you still have to think of what are the efficiencies of your team, uh, who are you playing against, and if you got a guaranteed one, but there is a guy open on the two, but he's an okay shooter, take the one. You know, take the one. I mean, if I were able to sneak open, we've done this a few times where – I'm able to sneak open to the corner. We have one. Guys will chuck it out to me, and and we'll think, hey, we'll we'll, we'll take the risk on that because we might get double. Um, it's a unique thing. I'm going to be very curious to see over the next few years how how more people take to this sport, uh, how kids take to this sport, and the opportunity it provides, specifically in Canada, uh, because I think the potential for three on three is is so high, and also too just from the plain fact of it's so much fun. Um, hopefully it just continues to grow and prosper in our country. And uh, we see Canada at the Olympics this year and in 2024 and in 2028 and, and all those good things as we continue to go. Yeah, you got the tournament coming up in Austria on May 26th. Yep. Everyone in Canada uh, is rooting for you, wishing you the best of luck. And Steve, we, we really appreciate the time. Thanks so much, Andrew. This was fun.